Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trainer Talks and Tales. My name is Daisy, and of course, I'm here with Tess. Hey, Daisy, how you going? Good. Thank you, Tess. We are excited for another really great chat that we've got this week, and we're focusing a little bit more on the birdie side of things for Tess, but it is a really fun conversation. Um, but before we get started, Tess, how's your week? What's you been up to? Uh, yeah, good. Thanks, Dave. So much new to report. Um, I've been training a lot of staff um, the last couple of weeks, so I've been flat chat doing that. Like, I think a lot of people, when they're trained, they come home, they're like, whoa, my brain's like, she have taken in so much information but yeah also the person training that person too is like thinking about every little thing that they're doing and explaining every little thing so yeah I'm a, a bit <laughs> rickrolled <laughs> from that but it's been really nice and I guess it just um makes me realize just how much is involved and how fun our role is too so lots of thinking but yeah not much new to report with me how about you how have you been what's been happening yeah, yeah, definitely been good. Week has been good. Obviously, still really, really busy because it's still school holidays in Queensland. And we've had a ton of rain, like I mentioned last week. And the rain obviously means that everyone comes to the aquarium, which is lovely, but it's been very busy. So um, only, I think, another week mm. left of school holidays. So it'll be nice to have a little bit of break from the crazy crowds before Easter starts. <laughs> Not that we're counting or anything. <laughs> yes. Um, but I do have a really quick recommendation. Um, we've actually had a couple of messages through when we've asked for topics or people that we want on the podcast. And a couple of people have asked about um, chatting through sort of parenthood in the role and what sort of it can look like being a mum, dad, etc., whilst working within the industry, different roles, challenges, etc. Um, and we'd absolutely love to work on an episode where we sort of discuss that. But I actually came across whilst I was researching someone that might be able to come on a podcast called Mothering Wildlife. And it's with this lovely lady called Elizabeth who is a keeper in the States. She actually interviews a ton of different people from around the country, chatting through their sort of different roles, challenges, et cetera, within motherhood. Um, but I was listening to her very first episode that she ever released, and I thought this was so interesting. So the guest that she had on um, works with a variety of different species, but at the zoo she works at, they have a really cool orangutan breeding um, area and they had this orangutan have this little baby and unfortunately she wasn't being very maternal she wasn't breastfeeding correctly she wasn't holding the baby on her chest and they'd previously had this issue um, with the last baby that she'd had and unfortunately they tried a few different things but they weren't able to get anything to work so with this one they actually wondered about the mimicking of seeing a human breastfeed their baby so she actually the the facility asked her because she was only sort of four or five months postpartum whether she'd be willing to come in show her baby on her chest breastfeed her baby in front of the orangutan and see if it sparked any sort of interest from the orangutan to be able to show those sort of nurturing behaviors to her baby 
and it was successful. So they actually saw that, I think it was within 24 hours or something crazy, that um, the orangutan mom started breastfeeding, started holding the baby close to the chest. So I just thought that was so cool and like a really That's interesting so cool. episode, yeah, to listen to. So I definitely recommend having a little, sort of listen to that. And yeah, it's something I'd never really thought about in the industry, but like kind of cool how that was successful. Yeah, I actually believe I've seen a presentation of that at a conference a few years ago. So maybe it's the same keep up. But yeah, that's incredible. Like, that is so amazing. What a career achievement, that's for sure. Yeah, I know. What a cool thing to be able to, you know, say to a son or daughter when they're older. <laughs> they were a part of that, which I think was pretty cool. Um, but yeah. one more thing, Tess, before we get into the episode, Tess and I were just chatting as well about how we've had a few other people kind of reach out about maybe doing a training episode on hoofstock or ungulates Tess and I are a little bit stuck because we haven't really had that experience with those animals before or know anyone in the industry um, to reach out to so this is kind of a bit of a call out if you think that you might know the guru of training with a hoofstock species ungulates etc um, or you think that you might be that person please feel free to send us a message because we'd absolutely love to do a few more episodes covering different species, you know, like giraffe, rhino, et cetera. Um, but yeah, we're a bit stuck for a possible host. So feel free to send us a message. We'd absolutely love to hear from you all. Yeah, that would be really helpful. All right, guys. Well, let's get into this episode. We're pretty excited. We have Matthew Kettle joining us today. He works at Taronga Zoo and runs the bird show there and has actually had over 25 years experience uh, particularly with working with free flight birds. So right up my alley. So let's get into the episode. Okay, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us on Trainer Talks and Tales. We are so excited to talk to you. Um, I'm really excited for this episode. So I'm keen to get into it in a moment. But before we do, are you okay if we ask you five quick questions, our fast five, if you will, um, that you have Absolutely. to answer very quickly? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number one, peregrines or parrots? Peregrines. Number two, coffee or tea? Tea. Three, hot roast for Christmas Day in Australia or cold food salads and seafood? Hot roast. Number four, bald eagles or wedge-tailed eagles? Wedge-tails. And number five, washing your white clothes separately, yes or no? Hopefully never. <laughs> that was okay, a fun fast five Tess you did a good job coming up with some of yeah, those fun ones I thought you'd like that Daisy <laughs> I tried to think outside the square a bit no um, I like it I would have to agree with most of them except absolutely not it's too hot for a hot roast here in Queensland anyway it's like 36 degrees on Christmas day so you just gotta have a cold salad <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I grew up with uh, roasts every Sunday, no matter if it was 40 degrees or more. And also it's never too cold for ice cream. So it's two things worth knowing. True, true, true. Yeah, words yeah. of wisdom there. We'll just end the episode there. <laughs> just pearls of wisdom. No, I'm with you on the roast for sure. Now, Matthew, you clearly had a really incredible career and I kind of wait to hear a little bit more about it, but is there any chance you could maybe talk us through how you started in the industry, your pathway and what you're up to now? Yeah, so I actually always had an interest in animals. My parents tolerated me keeping birds, not so much reptiles. I had to wait till I left home for that. Um, my school wasn't so encouraging. They thought that that was underachieving and uh, were trying to talk me into a more a professional career and I suppose the keeping at the time wasn't 
necessarily seen the same lens that it has now. Um, and then I deferred from uni, wasn't sure what I wanted to do except work with animals. And I started working more in laboratory science. It was the easiest animal work to get. And I was working at in Melbourne at Royal Melbourne Hospital, then Melbourne Uni, but each um, opportunity gave me, a, my bosses recommended me to somebody else and um, made reptile friends who knew people at Hillsville Sanctuary. And I had an opportunity to take on a maternity leave position there, which was very general, but they had the Bird of Prey show and they had a Zimbabwean park ranger slash falconer working there who I, um, hounded. <laughs> I just loved everything he had to tell me. Uh, he was flying a lot of rehab birds um, in his breaks and I would try to be invited along and he was resistant at first. I don't think he was, he was a bit suspicious of my interest. I flagged that I would be prepared to be involved in the show if there was an opportunity, but because I was on contract, they said probably not, which I thought fair enough. But the, the guys who ran the show were the only keepers that didn't have the same breaks with everybody else. So when there was an opportunity, I just jumped in and kind of got hooked. I never thought I'd get to work with raptors. In my mind, growing up, they were completely protected. I just absolutely loved every second of it. And working with Richard, um, the falconer from Zimbabwe, he just had so much passion and knowledge gave me every book and I just read them front to back and got mm -hmm. completely addicted. After being at Hillsville for almost four years, went up to Sydney and was completely terrified of the site because Hillsville is very rural, surrounded by hills that are some heavily forested and some very agricultural, but Taronga, this was surrounded by undulating hills, the harbour that's weaved in and out, and even if a bird flew from the zoo to the next bit of land, the bird might do it in 30 seconds, but I'm thinking that's gonna take me half an hour to get there. And I was like, how could you ever use this environment? And so mm -hmm. it was just a wonderful opportunity. And then it ended up being extended out to over six months. I only meant to be there three, but because everything got dragged out. Um, and then I went and did an internship after, I think one to two years at Taronga, I thought was a good time to consider um, taking an opportunity to go work with Steve. They did internships at the Dallas State Fair every year. I think the year I was there was might have been the 20th year of them being there. The show runs for four weeks. It was like a two-week bump in, and they get huge numbers. I think the seat, the seating was about 5,000-seat amphitheatre and flying all kinds of birds. Um, and then we drove them all back to uh, Florida, and then I got involved with, um, just for two weeks working at the Disney Animal Kingdom free flight show that Steve also was running at the time. So that was very polished um, microphones in the ears for the presenters. So the sound booth tech would talk to them and be telling them when you know, raptors were safe before parrots came out, but also telling the actors if they had to keep out living and so on. And so that was a wonderful experience and they were doing I want to say eight shows a day. They were like on, on the hour. It was crazy. They cut it back not long after that, but it was, you were setting up the next show as the show was still running. So it was pretty full on. And then wow. yeah, came back to Taronga. And although I've had little opportunities here and there, I've been there now. I'm in my 28th year 
working at Taronga. The show just had its 26th um, year anniversary last September. Holy moly. And to dedicate that long um, and the changes you would have seen over that time is just just so incredible and like it sounds like you've done so many cool stuff uh, like so much cool stuff in your career so we can't wait to you know delve into that and get into the nitty-gritty a little bit more well um, my question was find it, oh sorry sorry Ted. no I was just gonna say I find it really interesting that you've been able to have sort of two really ends of the scale of working in a quite small bird team that's quite you know flexible comes and goes compared to what sounds like a very structured animal kingdom bird show like you know do you have a preference of which one you kind of preferred or is it a bit of both or kind of um, a medium in between I think somewhere in between for sure the Hillsville show when I was there it would be anywhere from half an hour plus and I had it in my head the most information I could give them was the best show I then remember watching a video and wishing I would just be quiet you know <laughs> thinking that people have already heard what I had to say and the bird was ready to go home and I was still talking about it you know because I think I was so excited by what I was getting to do and learning about the animals that I was getting to work with. So I assumed everybody else was the same. Um, oh. In hindsight, probably realised that was not true. <laughs> uh, Steve's, Steve's shows are much faster moving. Those routines can be quite short and you kick through quite quickly. And I suppose in many ways our show resembles more that at Taronga, but we still have some kind of informality to it and... Uh, our team is not as big as the Disney team, but bigger than the Hillsville team. So we're sort of, yeah, I think we've got a bit of uh, best of both worlds. And realistically, the stage at Taronga is pretty special with the view back to the city up on the harbour. And now that it doesn't fill me with dread, I can sit back and just enjoy it. Yeah. And I think what you were speaking about before was passion talking. We've all been, we've all been there. You just keep talking and talking, talking, and you're just so into it. You're like, oh, wait, hang on. Sorry. I, I kind of went on a tangent there. Um, I remember one of my head of departments a few years ago, like Tess, um, you don't have to say every fact, you know, about that species. <laughs> like let's just bring it back a little bit. So um, we've all been victim to it. <laughs> Yeah, that was exactly my problem looking back. And uh, my team probably don't think I've completely got rid of that problem. <laughs> well, um, my question, which you've kind of covered was, um, you know, was raptors something that you wanted to go for from the beginning or something that you kind of like fell into? And, and that sounds like um, that was more so the case that you were like, oh, no, no, I wouldn't work with raptors. And you got into it. And here you are, you know, 27 later, uh, 27 years later, and you're still, um, you know, passionate about raptors. So that's great to see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always liked animals generally. I, I don't think I'm, I think I'm a dabbler in lots of things rather than a specialist in anything. And um, your dad used to take me up bird watching. He wasn't a particularly a big birdo himself but he could see that I was interested and that could be waterfowl or anything that we would go look at uh, reptiles have always interested me predatory animals generally from spiders to you know praying mantises to big cats uh, all the reptilians that are hunters like I've always enjoyed that side of nature and I suppose when I had a chance to work with raptors that ticked a lot of boxes and I think the other thing is I don't think see myself as maybe the modern zookeeper went through a shift of very little hands-on animals and and I really like the hands-on 
and I'd like that intimate relationship you can get with working with an animal. And, and there's been a turnaround. There's a lot more training involved in general zookeeping now as for enrichment reasons and, um, you know, so a varied of reasons, including making the welfare of the animal better. But there was a stage in my career where it was frowned upon. You know, I suppose I could understand their reasoning, but at the end of the day, being able to work with an animal up nice and close that really trusted you is probably one of the real attractions for me. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I can imagine like it, you've been a part of such a massive change in the advancement of training and the importance, the knowledge around it, I guess, has just come in more and more every single year and it's becoming more prominent within all facilities and all species now. Now, you obviously shared that you've worked at a variety of different facilities. You've been at Taronga for a long time. You actually run the bird show at Taronga and you were there when the whole thing started up, which was with the incredible team that Steve does from Natural Encounters. Can you chat a little bit more about that and how that all started and what went into starting that amazing bird show? Yeah, so when I first rocked up, there was a group of people from Taronga that were told they would be part of that experience. And most of them had a degree of training um, in their background from a couple of years to multiple years, but some of that was a bit more old school. So a bit more, I suppose, less using positive reinforcement is, is a big part of that. And that was just the history of probably animal training. Then when Steve's crew came, um, they already had a group of birds they'd selected, a couple of they'd found. There was a lot of non-releasable birds in that mix. We almost looked at everything in the collection that wasn't seen as super valuable for the bird team. Like, what would you mind if we played with um, and things like that? So we briefly played with the last Victoria crown pigeons that were in the zoo. Uh, we played with channel bill cuckoos, um, pheasant cuckoos, um, on top of all the different parrots that we had available to us and quite a few different raptors that mainly came in with um, rehab stories or some of them one had been captive for like 11 years and was kept by a family at their kennels you know and then somehow found out about it and ended up coming back to the zoo our original white-bellied seagull was a victim of a steel jaw rabbit trap and was missing the majority of her toes off one foot and she was the first year bird when she came in and so yeah a whole mixture and everything was being trained at once the facilities weren't built yet so we were sort of busy patching up and birds were being kept more in smaller, almost like pet parrot cages initially. And the raptors were um, typically tethered um, indoors, outdoors, depending time of day. And now like everything we have is free lofted. Um, we almost never um, tether for more than, you know, a moment. It's usually a training based thing for a raptor. And then, but yeah, goals so our current collection, everything is in groups except for the raptors. Although we're playing with that a bit more with things like kites that are a little bit more tolerant of each other. So coming full circle in that regards. But yeah, we were flying birds all around the zoo, mainly down up and down service roads, waiting for the facility to finally be finished and then moved on to basically a cliff a couple hundred feet over the water, looking directly to the city and just all this clear space in front of us, which on a good day when the winds are blowing the right way, super exciting. Um, birds fly over the cliff and just shoot, you know, tens of feet to hundreds of feet in the air without moving their wings and um, and just can hold themselves in those positions. And 
back then we had limited amount of telemetry available to yeah. us. The technology was still a little bit younger. Definitely the GPS technology today was non-existent. And we only put it on raptors that were deemed a bigger flight risk, as in they could go further quicker, but everything else didn't use it at all. So if, if your magpie went around the corner, you weren't mm -hmm. always sure if it was just another zoo magpie that was used to people or owls <laughs> sometimes, you know. So, you know, different things like that happened. But it was a great time. We were working like 12-hour days um, yeah. just because it was summer and the days were long and there was just lots to do. And it was it was by choice. Like, you know, we just kept working while the light was there. And um, even when my girlfriend came up from Melbourne, she bags me out now because she's now my wife, that I still didn't stop working when she came up to visit because we were just, <laughs> it was just such an exciting time with so much going on. And, uh, you know, lots of animals were flying free, but decided not the best candidates for shows. And, and many we we flew for extended periods of time and we still have a black-breasted buzzard that's an original bird so it's turned 27 last year wow. and still with us so and we have a black kite that's um, not far off the same age wow to think that you've worked with those individuals like from the beginning that's just remarkable it kind of sounds like organized chaos in the beginning yeah in in the beginning there like you know like all right let's get yeah. these all trained and that kind of thing but yeah, yeah it certainly what an exciting was. time and steve's company was teaching us steve's version of um training at the time so he kind of did his own abbreviated version of of the science of it that he thought was easy for people who'd never trained before. And he's come full circle in the couple of years after that, where now he teaches it as the science teaches it and uses all the same terminology. But at the time, um, I suppose the main difference was punishment. He referred to that as a different thing to what we see as punishment as a training definition today. And um, so I remember when I first started learning it the other way, I, I did second guess myself a little because I thought I was really comfortable with what I was taught originally and and having been someone who grew up more on falconry books you know I, I probably second guessed myself a little about some of those elements of what I was learning and then having to relearn it and so on but you know I mean we're talking you know, almost 30 years ago when that was happening and I think training is so different now and people's oh, just, I get staggered by the knowledge of some of the young people coming through with how much they've absorbed of training theory and terms that I don't consider at all and they're bringing them up and I go well you tell me what you're talking about and then sometimes <laughs> I understand the practice of what they're doing and want to achieve but the terminology is not always on the tip of my tongue that's for sure no that's me and Daisy Daisy will say something like uh, I feel like I understand what you're saying but I don't know the technical terms <laughs> um yeah the terminology is um much more advanced these days <laughs> Now, um, you, we're just talking about Steve Martin and his company, Natural Encounters, and you mentioned very briefly in the intro um, that you were in the US earlier in your career. Um, you're also given the opportunity to work at um, Zoom Marine in Portugal for a week to help upskill their staff with their um, lure flying of their sacred falcons. Were these all just absolute career highlights? And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about them? You said before it was a bit hectic with the eight shows a day and that kind of stuff. So they, they were just highlights for you. 
Yeah, the Zoom Marine one was a wonderful opportunity and that actually came through Steve. They actually reached out to him originally and he felt that he didn't have anyone particularly at the time that he could afford to lose to head over and asked me would I be interested in doing it um, not on his behalf. I didn't go on behalf of um, Natural Encounters, but I, I went on basically his recommendation of me, uh, which was really nice. And um, they didn't have much lure flying skills on the team. The team was fairly young and was very parrot-centric, but they were starting to move towards a show very similar to ones that Steve does. And some of those people are still in the industry today, um, like Miguel, who's done a lot of stuff with um, IATA and is currently working in uh, the new marine park at Abu Dhabi, which has got you know massive bird sections. He's out there now, but he was very young at the time. I think he was still a teenager when I was there. And so I w went out there and with the goal, they already could fly these birds, but just teaching them the ways that I would go about lure flying and strategies that weren't based necessarily in theory, but just my own way of liking to do it and sharing why. And we, they all made their own lures and started learning um, to fly the birds in the ways that I would go about it if I was teaching members of my own team now. And the Saker Falcons were fantastic to fly. They were really like to chase the lure, really dynamic little birds, well, you know, bigger than an Australian male peregrine, but I still class them as little in my head. Uh, but they also had things like tawny eagles and all that that we got to work with as well. And um, they were flying different parrots. And their show's grown and grown um, in the time since I've left there. They built a new theatre and they're flying different uh, corvids and dorks and cranes and uh, vultures and all sorts of things. Um, obviously, the opportunities for a diverse group of birds is stronger in Europe and the States compared to Australia. We're a bit more limited to a few exotic parrots and and everything else is what we can work with that's native so that you know has some limitations but still equally exciting yeah that honestly all sounds incredible and like i was literally just about to say that the variety of different species that you can get overseas compared to australia is so diverse and love our natives but it must have been so much fun to be able to work alongside some different exotic or you know non-native species to what we have here in australia as well yeah, absolutely. And hornbills are something that's always yeah. um, interested me. And they use a mixture of ground hornbills and then trumpeters were the main probably ones they had access to. But then if you go to Jerome Bird Park and they've got, you know, the giant Indian hornbill and, you know, which is just a magnificent looking bird and it's so large and uh, didn't get to work with them, but just sat there and marveled at it as an audience member and, and things like that. And, yeah you're really quite staggering and marabou stalks are used quite a lot now and they're so grotesquely beautiful i just i just love looking at them and the way they fly and you know i get that some people find them unattractive but i love that whole group of birds and i think vultures are really quite stunning and um you know i've been very lucky to have worked with the only vulture opportunity in australia but also through Steve's company was able to work with a few different vulture species overseas as well. And anytime I've traveled and go to places like, you know, the Hawk Conservancy in the UK that flies a good diversity of vultures, it's very cool to flag that you're in the industry, and get a bit of an extra special look around and meet the staff and so on. And that's always lovely. And to 
to get that sort of opportunity. Yeah, get up close to a big Cyrenus vulture is pretty special. It's one of my favorites to look at and having not flown one, just being within moments, you know, millimeters of it is still incredibly exciting. I've been to the Hawk Conservancy in the UK and it is phenomenal. It's such a cool place and so many amazing species. Tash, you'd love it. So I do feel like you need to get to the UK one time because there is such a variety of different raptor species. I got the opportunity to fly a stellar seagull whilst I was there a couple of years ago and that was probably one of the highlights um, with an animal for sure that I've had. Yeah, I yeah. did see one little place in England, but we were only there for like two days and the array of species that they had, I was just like, this is just unreal. I need to go back and do this like for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe talking about some slightly different species, not only are you part of the bird show, but you've also been massively involved in the breeding of condors at Taronga Zoo. Can you tell us a little bit more about the breeding program are they a difficult species to breed? How does it look? Like, how does it work for you guys? Oh, we we definitely had some challenges. The when I got there, the two birds that were at the zoo were about nineteen years old, and they'd been living together since they were very very young. They were hatched out in the same year, and we then decided when Steve's company came over, quite a history of flying condors, to give the male a chance to. His temperament was, we thought, more suitable, but he actually was really quite afraid of, I call it flying, but it was really more controlled falling. And he didn't like getting up with much height, And but he was still very exciting to watch, but he hated banking and turning. Obviously, it, you need a very large aviary for a condor to learn flight skills, and he didn't have that. And so we, we did have quite a few challenges. He... He was in the show for a couple of years, but then he started damaging his own feathers, we believe probably stress-related. We moved back in um, with the female condor and they immediately started showing reproductive behaviours and we started seeing eggs. Um, some of they obviously very slow breeding birds, like most of large birds in the world and typically in the wild can only successfully breed every other year. But if the eggs aren't there or the chick fails, they can go back into another, they can go into the next season and attempt again. So we worked in conjunction with the bird department, but we were the very first fertile egg we actually artificially incubated and, uh, and raised the bird from the egg. That bird um, at the time wasn't destined for the show and we didn't really have anywhere to keep it long-term that was appropriate. But that bird ended up going up to Australia Zoo and um, was up there for quite a long time with Frank, who I know you guys um, got my name from. And that was Frank, um, um, that, Chief. Was it Chief, the condor that went up to Australia Zoo? No, before before Chief, oh, the bird before, before Chief. Before Chief, and that, wow. And I think that bird got up to reproductive age but then had some health complications. And Chief was the second bird. We, we called Chief Inti when he was with us before he went up and um, yeah, so that was the second one. So we started having a couple of birds that we managed to hand rear, but then we were like, you know what, we'd rather give the parents an opportunity to rear them themselves. And they had a little bit of success and they raised two, but not necessarily every opportunity they had. So we had failed eggs um, and some chicks that didn't make it um, quite early. 
But then we started noticing we were getting a defect in the egg, which every future egg already always had. And there was a air bubble between the mem membrane and the shell wall. And as the egg rotates under the parents or under um, artificial incubation, it was wiping the blood vessels away from the surface so they couldn't anchor and keep developing and it eventually become weak and would die. And the bird team came up with so many strategies and eventually found they created a cradle, didn't rock it as far, put it on an angle, kept watching it. And through their efforts, it was really quite amazing. We, they successfully hatched out um, a couple of chicks under artificial incubation that way. But part of the problem, I suppose, was there wasn't a lot of homes for them. And being a big, long-lived animal, it's quite an investment for a facility. So once a couple of places like Australia Zoo showed an interest, another bird went back to America to be uh, part of the breeding program for so its offspring. If it ends up having some, would be going back to South America for release, which was nice to be part of. But it was quite a big expense for a species the zoo wasn't really targeting. And it was a species in the region that they decided would not be maintained long term. So we, we successfully fledged I think it's seven chicks in total before the parents seem to stop laying. And the parents, um, well, the father's still alive and he's close to 50 years old now. And um, the mother passed away from an injury a couple of years ago. So um, so there's still, a, there's still a few and there's four in the country, but it's unless something changes, that these will be the last four, which is sad, but I've been able to work with them for almost three decades and definitely one of the highlights and they've given me wonderful experiences and exposure and like uh, even just some of their extended flights that in their training that they've gone on landing in people's backyards around the zoo and mm -hmm. landing randomly in places even around the zoo um you know as, as we, we have a beach directly underneath the theater just outside the primitive zoo it's landed down there before and scared people walking their dogs and things like that because she's pretty she's pretty big and pretty yeah, intimidating if you don't know what you're small looking bird. at <laughs> no and so you that's... know that's given us some wonderful and seeing you're up overhead flying around circling in the wind doesn't happen often enough but when it does and seeing her have control over what she's doing it's pretty exciting to see um, most of the time they just parachute down to stage so seeing them when they do circle and fly around it gives us a lot of joy. Yeah, when you were um, talking about your stage setup before, anyone who hasn't seen Taronga's bird show, like you have to just book flights to Sydney and go see it. Like the setting is just picturesque. It's just incredible. And um, yeah, seeing birds in that setting is just unreal. But I can also see you know, flying birds myself, that it's it's all well and good until, you know, the wind changes or, you know, the weather isn't in your favour and, like, the bird's, like, over the edge or, you know, condor lands next to someone at the beach, like, <laughs> crazy. Um, it's just a it's all, an awesome setting. So you have it um, really good there. And I can see why you've been there for almost 30 years. Um, yeah, we always say it's a pretty nice office. When you're looking back out yeah. in that view. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And what and an amazing show... breeding program as well. Like such an incredible breeding yeah. program to be part of. And, you know, even if this is sort of 
you know, leaning towards maybe the end, like what an incredible thing for you to have been a part of and to achieve as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of joy in working, you know, with the general bird department who we couldn't have done a lot of that without. And, you know, that sort of partnership. And I think we, we both share ownership over, you know, that whole journey and being with a condor from the day it hatches to, you know, to the day it starts flying is, is pretty cool. Okay, so you said before that Taronga's show is in its 27th year and obviously you've been there for a long time and its free flight show has actually um, earned over $60,000, I think you said, in conservation work and this has occurred over the last 15 years. Where does this money actually go to and is it all collected by parrots grabbing $5 notes off visitors? <laughs> um yeah it's a it, we you did used to do a parrot routine where we it was just a gag it was more about just the public <laughs> interaction with an animal um where a bird would steal the money give it to us and so on it was a, a gag that's been used overseas uh, so we didn't uh, invent it but we'd happily stole it for a long time uh that's but we're one. actually up to almost uh six hundred thousand dollars so we're well over half a million that we've raised now in that 15 years but we used to have a bird that would sit on a box that would take money directly from people's hands and drop it in. But then we sort of went kind of as the zoos moving to be as, you know, I suppose as the way the ethics of a zoo, the welfare of the animals change over time. We kind of said, well, what message are we giving with the bird receiving the money when it's not really doing anything remotely natural and, we thought if we took the animal out of the picture, we may actually see a huge decline of funds, but we actually saw an increase. So I think because what was happening before is kids would come down with a handful of small coins. And then when that wasn't happening for the animal, just to have that interaction, we were getting people who generally wanted to donate after watching the experience. And um, the zoo's been heavily involved from a bird perspective with region honey eaters not just Taronga, many other zoos are as well, but that's been going on for over 20 years, their involvement in that species. So they do breed release monitoring and a lot of the funds we raise doesn't just go to the zoo's conservation work, but the zoo creates fellowships that people, not fellowships, uh, conservation research fellowships or grants. I think they're called field grants and people apply for those all around the world. And the money that we raise contributes to all of that as well. And in fact, they said because of the amount of revenue that we were making, they actually were able to offer more money to more people um, or support projects that also needed more funds. So, um, so yeah, it's something we feel you know really proud about. Definitely doesn't get swallowed up just in operational stuff. It go goes out there to, for a whole array of programs. Um, within Taronga and and around the world yeah that's so interesting to hear and I'm, I find it really interesting that the amount of money donated increased when you removed that sort of really close interaction with the animal because normally you know the closer people can get the you know more likely they are to want to save those animals more likely they are want to contribute towards them but it obviously is a massive testament to just how impressive and how educational and inspiring that bird show was that you've created to be able to encourage people and want pe and people to want to help those animals out in the wild too. So that's a you know massive credit to all of you at Taronga. Yeah, no, we like you were initially surprised 
but thought it was still the right decision and it were prepared to accept smaller level of don um, donations. But yeah, it's been the complete opposite. And we've actually found that the donations, because when we didn't have the right number of people, we couldn't have a, a person out there with the bird. So now we don't need the bird, we can have it. We have a fixed donation box that's permanently out there. We used to wheel one out at the end of every show, wheel it back. Now it's concreted in with its own little lockbox at the bottom. And um, and because it's there every show, I think that's also part of it too. But we went from thinking we were doing well at maybe earning $15,000 a year to now doing 50 to 70 in a year. Yeah, that that's six amazing. over 600000 towards conservation is an incredible achievement. And, you know, I can't even imagine you know, what that number is going to get to within the next sort of decade. So, so exciting for all of those animals out in the wild that are going to, you know, appreciate all of that money and what it's going to go towards. Now, we did do a little bit of a Q&A with some of our audience and on our social media. So we've got a few questions for you, if you don't mind, if we get into those. Go for it. Okay. Well, question number one, I'm excited to hear your answer. So do you have a memorable mishap from one of your bird shows? Beyond the basics of tripping over and um, <laughs> just a bird just sitting where it, I mean, I had a condor sit in a box when the door opened, just sat there at the top of a 30 meter tower for 45 minutes before it came <laughs> out. Um, and we just had to wait. And I had guests wait with me, which was a shock. But I think that some of the most memorable stuff is some of the extended flights when things don't quite go right. And we go off looking for the animals and particularly with the tracking gear that we have now, it can be actually be a real great team building experience. So we're all working together, tracking the animal down and then still have to wait to get it back. If you know Sydney at all, we've had the birds cross the harbour and head towards um, Bondi and we've had birds travel further north up towards Narrabeen and many people's homes around Mossman. Um, over, you know, when we're talking over 30 years, we, we don't have them super regularly, but over 30 years, you get your share of them and met many, many locals. Um, WHS maybe wasn't as respected in those early years in our recovery efforts, but they definitely much more so now. But yeah, you know, taking knocking on someone's door to say your condor you think is in their backyard and, <laughs> and, the, and the person's reaction to those type of things or, um, yeah, people wondering what you're doing. Has it got the chain on the door as you're knocking and peeking out at you and you're trying to flash your zoo logo to say who you are because why are you knocking on their door otherwise? And and then they come back and meet us at the zoo and say, oh, it was my house that you got that peregrine back from or uh -huh. something like that. And just some of those experiences are really quite special and and even when the team might be going through its own personal challenges, it really brings us together when something like that happens. And and I think we're all coming back to work at the end of it with big smiles and, you know, thinking, oh, what a day, you know. So, um, yeah, they're probably some of the most memorable um, things. Beyond wild bird interactions, we've had peregrines come in during the show, wild ones, and um, because of where with our vantage, we also see, you know, lots of goshawks and ospreys and white-bellied seagulls and and they have the potential to have an impact on the show and in the case of the peregrines they've sometimes tried to chase our birds and they've been the cause of our red-tailed black cockatoos before going on 
extended flights and having to go look for them. So we have a few more cautions in the show now. If we see peregrines, we don't let the red tails out because we know they're um, their flight risks in those moments. And but other birds, yeah, if a wild gosselk comes through, we often just point it out, you know, and say there's a brown, there's a grey, you know, which is pretty cool. So don't you just love that when wild birds uh, of prey love to join right at showtime? Like I feel like, you know, we'll be flying our Brahmini 10.30 on the dot, start the mic, first bird's Brahmini, and then here's a couple of Brahminis that like to fly straight nice. over. They're like, oh, it's 10, 10.30, I better fly over and just, um, you know, intercept the show. Or like same with the peregrines, like peregrines come in and I'll be pointing to it and it's not our peregrine. I was like, oh, hang on. Oh, that's ours. Like, it's crazy, their timing, and they're like, yep, we're just going to mess this up a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. In- I think some of that's great. And, <laughs> I mean, we obviously, we've had, Steve Martin actually took a photo of our white-bellied flying, and it had a, a raven holding its back with its wings out, holding its back and its feet with its wings out. So it was <laughs> like it was riding it, and another raven was kind of up the backside of it, sort of, flying underneath it trying to grab its feathers or with the you know as far as I'm concerned they were trying to just annoy it enough to hopefully make it leave um but you know an amazing photograph and so things like that your bird doesn't appreciate it loves it when it's all gone and doesn't have to worry about it anymore but from an audience perspective some of those wild interactions are pretty special yeah absolutely makes the show a bit exciting um, now, aside from condor, condors, for your final question, do does Taronga's breeding program focus on natives only or do you focus on any other exotic species too? We definitely am part of insurance program stuff out at Dubbo, um, our sister zoo with, you know, things like rhinos and so on. But most of what Taronga is involved in is definitely natives. There's a large skew to, um, to herp groups, um, many different frog species, turtle species, Christmas Island skinks and so on, um, but and birds. The two main species we're dealing with at the moment are still the Regent Honey Eater and the Plains Wanderer, and they they are breed release programs. But we've also been on Lord Howe Island and you know cared for the Lord Howe Island Currawong and Wood Hen while they were doing the the baiting for rats. And that was more a care program until they could be re released. And, you know, we're also involved in um, snail conservation at the moment and different things. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different programs they're involved in. And the zoo definitely, in my time there, is trying to make sure it spends more energy in that field than um, just caring for animals in a husbandry sense. So it means the collection has definitely changed over the years. We don't have the same diversity and numbers of birds that we once had for the public to see because... A lot of those spaces have been taken up with for conservation animals and you need room for them. So um, it, it's definitely been a shift from that point of view, but it's, yeah, it's still very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's um, so much value in, in all those species, even even the snails. <laughs> yeah, so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, Matthew, thank you so much for talking to us today. I feel like you and I could have our own separate chat about bird shows and mishaps and um you know all those adventures that we have in our free flight bird shows but it's been awesome to talk to you and yeah we're really thankful for your time i am yeah, my pleasure embarrassed to say that i am one of those people that has never been to taronga zoo so oh, i am Daisy. going to aim to get down to sydney this year hopefully and 
you know, they have all the cool seals, penguins, but obviously the bird show too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would be great <laughs> to meet you. Before I worked at Taronga, I'd never been there either. So, <laughs> okay. There we go. <laughs> slackers, absolute slackers. <laughs> thank you all so right, much well, for your time, you Matthew. Very much. No worries. Lovely to meet you both. Tess, was that such a good episode for you, chatting all about birds? Yes, for sure. I, we actually had a big chat afterwards after we hung up our Zoom call and just went into a few ins and outs of um, things that go wrong and things that are chaos, but also so fulfilling. So yeah, love it. Hope you guys enjoyed that chat too. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. It was nice to sort of chat about birds again and like I miss working with the birdies too. So it was it was nice to have a conversation about so many species and his experience is incredible. So we hope that you guys all got a lot out of that chat for sure. See you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone.